In this episode of What's the Story, Old Glory, we talk about constitutional crises, the problems of appointing a Speaker to the House of Representatives, and possible legal impediments to Trump's candidacy with Professor of Constitutional Law and Politics at the Arizona State University, Stephanie Lindquist. And in Past Glory, we talk about Herbert Hoover. Welcome to What's the Story, Old Glory. My name's Todd Muller from a beautiful Tauranga, and of course my uh, erstwhile colleague from the Deep South. Kia ora, Elizabeth here. It's a beautiful day down in North Otago as well. It's actually feeling like summer is just around the corner. Oh, that's what you said last time, and it was snowed the next day. Come on. I know, I know, but it was 25 oh, yeah. yesterday. Yeah. So. I know, it's fantastic, but it's great, and... Um, very exciting episode today. Um, really looking forward to it. Uh, Stephanie Lindquist, please tell us, uh, Elizabeth, how did you uh, find her, and uh, what was your what is your hope for the interview? Yeah, so Stephanie Lindquist is our guest this week. She is um, Foundation Professor of Law and Political Science at Arizona State University um, and the Executive Director of the Centre for Constitutional Design at Arizona State University as well. So she's recognised in the US as an expert on the US Supreme Court and constitutional law. So we're very fortunate to have her with us. She wrote an excellent opinion piece that appeared in... um, uh, local publications here in New Zealand, um, and it was on the potential constitutional crisis being caused by the uh, what was at the time a stalemate in the House of Representatives for the appointment of the next uh, Republican Speaker. So I got in touch with her, and she very graciously agreed to come on our podcast. And I sat down virtually with her earlier in the week, um, and yeah, had a great interview. And I can't wait to listen to her view on what on earth is going on over there with the speakership and how is it possible that a presidential candidate could even get elected uh, with all those uh, legal cases and legal jeopardy in front of them. Let's listen to Elizabeth uh, and Stephanie. Professor Lindquist, thank you so much for joining us this morning. We really appreciate your time. Thanks for having me. So the focus of our podcast is about the countdown to the 2024 uh, US presidential election. Um, But over the last few weeks, most of the news that we've had um, coming out of the states hasn't really been in relation to the uh, election itself. It's been mainly about what's happened in the House of Representatives in relation to the Speaker and also Donald Trump's legal issues that he's currently going through. So it would be great if you could explain to our listeners, particularly given that most of them are in New Zealand and we have quite a different system to what there is in the States um, around what happened with the speakership. So um, there was a previous speaker who's no longer there and it led to a prolonged period without a speaker. So yeah, if you could just give us a bit of information about, about what happened and why. Sure. Well, as you probably know, the position of speaker, of course, has its origins in British Commonwealth politics. Uh, And it was uh, essentially brought from that tradition to the United States. In the House of Representatives, um, the speaker plays an enormously important role. Uh, It is the officer of uh, of the institution that determines what legislation will be evaluated and debated, brings that legislation to the floor, names all members uh, who will become chairs or members of various legislative committees. So in effect, the operations of the House depend upon someone filling the role of speaker. And I, I will say that over history, over the U.S. history, the, um, the speakership role has changed and has become more powerful over time. Um, it's its, uh, its powers, the, 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 the powers of the speaker are set forth in the rules of the House of Representatives. So one thing to be aware of is that while the U.S. Constitution does name the speaker and suggest that the House will elect a speaker from among its membership, it does not set forth what the, the specific powers and duties of the speaker are. That is actually set forth by the House rules that have evolved over time. 
And what happened with Kevin McCarthy, of course, was that he uh, was elected speaker, but only after providing so many concessions to a faction of uh, far-right legislators that he enabled himself really to be removed without much difficulty. Uh, the, the rules that were changed for his speakership were that if a single member of the House sought basically a vote of no confidence, then that vote could be held. And that's a, that's a new, that was a new change in the House that had not been previously the case. Uh, and so one member of the House, Matt Goetz, uh, he decided he uh, was unhappy with uh, Speaker McCarthy's efforts to compromise with Democrats over the budget. Uh, and so he called for uh, a vote of no confidence and uh, McCarthy was removed. And then as you know, at that point, three weeks went by before the Republican majority in the House could elect a new speaker. Um, and it's just a majority vote. So the speaker only has to win a majority of the votes in the, in the House. Um, and the problem was that this faction of eight to 10 Republican far-right uh, representatives were making it very difficult to elect anyone to the role of speaker who had in any way uh, suggested that the 2020 election was not stolen. So what became the litmus test, unfortunately, for the Republican Party was uh, that, for the speakership, uh, was that someone had to be selected who had challenged the uh, certification of votes in 2020. And it's turned out that several of the candidates had not done so, and in fact had indicated that they thought the election was fair and free. And ultimately, therefore, we ended up with uh, Speaker Johnson, who uh, was uh, a member of the House in 2020, and he, in fact, did uh, challenge uh, the presidential election results. Um, and so he was one of about 130 that did so, 140 that did so. Um, so he met the litmus test, and he is now our Speaker. Wow. So the um, from what you're saying, it sounded like Kevin McCarthy's speakership was almost doomed from the start. Yeah. Um, and so the, the budget crisis, we heard about that in New Zealand as well, that there was potentially a government shutdown, which is something, again, that we haven't experienced here. So was that the, the, the from what you say, it sounds like that was the catalyst, but it was the issue over the um, alleged stolen election uh, in 2020. That was, the, that was the issue that split the Republican Party. So this is his own, Kevin McCarthy's own party that rolled him. Correct. Um, yeah. It was not the Democrats. They don't have the power to uh, remove uh, the speaker. The majority uh, elects the speaker. And, you know, there's only two parties in the United States. There might be an independent in the House. I'm not sure. But, um, but for the most part, it's only Republicans and Democrats, of course. And the Democrats are in the minority. Um, and, yes, the budget, by the way, uh, I think it's two weeks out we are at the moment from having to resolve uh, uh, the budget. And the way the United States government is funded is on a yearly basis, curiously. Uh, I understand New Zealand doesn't operate that way, but that's the mm -hmm. way we do, based upon our constitutional design that uh, suggests that the House has to appropriate funds to, uh, to fund the government. And so it's done on a yearly basis. Um, and you know we'll see what happens because uh, Speaker Johnson, what he has done so far is he has used um, Ukraine, et cetera, as leverage for a couple of other things he wanted to get done, trying to strike a deal saying we, and one of the things he did recently was to um, say he'd be perfectly happy to support aid to Ukraine if the federal government, uh, if there was legislation that the president would agree to that uh, cut funding uh, for the Internal Revenue Service. And uh, so there has always been in the Republican Party um, a you know anti-tax uh, mm -hmm. orientation, and the um, and so what he wanted to do was cut uh, a number of uh, IRS agents who had been hired over the last several years, particularly to address high-income taxpayers who were avoiding taxation. Uh, and so that failed, that effort failed. Uh, but um, that's the kind of thing I think we're going to see and. Ukraine funding is uh, very divisive within the Republican Party, again, unfortunately, from my perspective. Uh, but um, so we'll see how Ukraine funding is, is you know, used as leverage in the negotiations over the budget. If the budget is not passed, incidentally, Elizabeth, 
um, and there is no budget bill and the government shuts down, the ramifications are quite substantial. Um, for every employee of the federal government, they may not receive their paychecks. There is a law that says that during the period of government shutdown, um, employees will be reimbursed uh, retroactively for the compensation that they did not receive during the shutdown. But nevertheless, you can imagine the disruption of their lives and also uh, to the economy. And this has happened before. Um, mm. There's this has become a game of chicken when the House is dominated by a party that's in opposition to the president's party. And so this is this is not not un, unfortunately not unusual in the United States, but we will see what happens in two weeks. Wow. So it becomes a a sort of a, a horse trading kind Correct. of scenario where you've got the legislature and the executive uh, tussling it out to, to see who will make concessions. That's right. And neither one wants to shut down the government. And so the question becomes, who is more likely to be blamed, right, by the electorate mm -hmm. uh, if the government is shut down? And at the moment, I think that uh, because Joe Biden has the bully pulpit in the sense he's, you know, in the presidency, mm -hmm. he uh, could very well win that battle, right? If it ends up in a shutdown, it may be that the Republicans will be blamed. And in fact, it's probably likely they would simply because the public has seen the disarray mm -hmm. uh, in the Republican Party and no doubt, you know, would not be surprised to see that that disarray produced, you know, a, a very unfortunate shutdown of the government. Um, and so we will see what happens. And remember, the Senate is dominated by Democrats. So it's really mm -hmm. the House that would be the holdout. Well, there's still, quite a, there's still quite a bit of time left in this Congress. So what's to stop it happening over and over again? Are you talking about the uh, the speakership? Uh, yeah. Hands? Well, I, frankly, nothing. I mean, I don't I don't know whether Johnson has uh, I actually don't know whether there has been an agreement when Johnson took the speakership to remove that uh, very simple vote of no confidence that could be triggered by a single member as mm -hmm. part of his negotiations to take the speakership. If I were in his shoes, of course, that's what I would have negotiated. Um, and so uh, and so I don't know. I'd have to I'd have to check on that. But that um, doesn't change the fact that, you know, that there is this faction within the Republican Party that is willing to make noise and to disrupt the institution uh, to achieve their aims. It's not exactly clear what their aims are, <laughs> um, but uh, but they're certainly agitated enough. Um, by various things uh, in, you know, the U.S. political system and in, a, in our society to to try to use that their eight to ten votes in the House to ensure that they can achieve whatever those objectives are. Mm -hmm. So at the time of this of the um, uh, stalemate between speakers, you wrote that um, it was close to being a constitutional crisis. Can you explain yeah. what that means um, in a bit more detail? Just bearing in mind that New Zealand is one of the few countries that doesn't have a written constitution. Yes, I know. Ours is an assemblage of laws, conventions, and um, and other documents. So it's yeah. it's it's quite different to think about what what would provoke a constitutional crisis in New Zealand compared to to what would happen in the states. Yes, I, I, I'm teaching a course on, on comparative constitutional design right now, and so we've mm -hmm. been talking about New Zealand and the situation without a written constitution. Um, or you have a sort of form of a constitution, but it's not the very clear document that we have that, you know, is is uh, very short. In fact, 7,000 words, of, you know, it's, we're not talking about a lot of, of text, but, um, but it certainly, uh, you know, shapes everything that we do. Mm -hmm. And typically speaking, when scholars, uh, law professors talk about uh, constitutional crisis, what they mean is a situation typically in which the executive uh, is at odds with the legislature and government comes to a grinding halt. You can think of Boris Yeltsin when he had a dispute uh, in the 90s with uh, the Russian legislature. And you may remember that uh, he called in the troops to take over uh, the parliament, the Russian parliament. That was a constitutional crisis because force was ultimately used to resolve that dispute. The constitution did not provide the kinds of uh, procedures that could you know, sort out the conflict. And um, that was similarly true, although not quite obviously at that level with respect to the speakership. The constitution of the United States did not provide a solution 
right, for the absence of a speakership. And at the same time, that absence meant that the government's work could not get done. And when the government comes to a grinding halt for whatever reason, whether it's because uh, there's a dispute that's, you know, sort of intractable between the executive and the legislature, um, or, you know, some other dispute arises that brings government to a grinding halt, that could qualify as a constitutional crisis. And that's why I described it as such. Um, it's not, it doesn't fall the typical sort of scenario uh, mm -hmm. in which the executive is seeking to grab power typically and has a, you know, ends up uh, dismissing the legislature or, you know, autocratizing a country. But, um, but in this case, it was certainly a crisis to the extent that the government, the federal government upon which, you know, every single thing that we do in the United States relies, uh, could not make law. So what would, if there was a government shutdown, what would that mean for, you talked about funding for Ukraine. So I guess one of the uh, issues that our listeners would want to hear about is what that means for, say, international relations, given the, um, you know, the, the, the uh, effects that US foreign policy has on global affairs. So what, what, would, what would government shutdown mean for the world? Well, it could mean, have very profound consequences. At the moment, both Israel and the Ukraine uh, are in some, you know, different respects, but are in some ways dependent upon, uh, you know, funding from the United States in various forms. And certainly Ukraine is, is very dependent upon that. Mm -hmm. um, in order to, uh, you know, provide the, the arms and weaponry and, um, and machinery of, of war to defend itself. And so a shutdown could uh, stop the flow of funds over to, potentially, over to uh, Ukraine. Uh, and they're in desperate need of it every day, as far as I understand the situation over there. Um, now, it may be that, you know, the House refuses to fund Ukraine anyway. Um, we'll see, you know, again, that, that depends upon the negotiations between the president and the House, um, because there are so many Republicans who are, have become, in, in effect, isolationists. Mm -hmm. So they, uh, in, in, you know, in some ways you can look at what happened to us, to the United States in Iraq, and the failed policies there, the failed policies in Afghanistan, the you know, very uh, unfortunate consequences of our uh, hasty withdrawal from Afghanistan. Um, and so many Americans look at that and say, we don't want to be involved anymore. We don't want, this is not our war, this is not our fight. Uh, we don't want to fund it. We've got plenty of problems at home. Um, why are we sending money over to support the Ukrainian government? And uh, obviously to me, in my humble opinion, that that's extremely short-sighted because we're dealing with a world that is, as I said before, autocratizing. It, it is, um, right now, there was a, a recent report that was issued by Varieties of Democracy Project, the VDEM is the shorthand way of describing that project. And they gather data from around the world. And they're showing at the moment that since 2012, to 2012 to 2022, the percentage of uh, human beings living in, an, in autocratic countries has increased by about 25%. Mm. Um, th this is very disturbing. Um, so we see a reversal of democratization. So to me, um, a, a, someone who is a staunch defender of democracy, um, the idea that we would allow Ukraine to fall to um, Putin's autocracy is extremely disturbing. And I've been to Ukraine several times and ASU has established a university over there in Kiev, and it's just a beautiful place with beautiful people. <laughs> so, um, so yeah, so a government shutdown could have significant consequences for Ukraine, especially. I, I suspect the Israelis, you know, have what they need, and through diplomacy, we can continue to support them. But Ukraine's, I think, a more dire circumstance mm. relative to Ukraine. It's quite extraordinary, isn't it? It is. It seems uh, that it's like you say that there was the rapid spread of democracy across the world in the second half of the 20th century now that's being unwound and part of that um expansion was thanks to the us and even within the republican party there was a a quite aggressive foreign policy in in some of these respects and it's quite a it's a complete 180 it seems we, we do vacillate in the United States between isolationism, <laughs> isolationism and internationalism. This is not the first time this, yeah, you know, right. we have this thing called the, you know, the Monroe Doctrine, which 
so you know we 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 all the way back in the dawn of the republic there was vacillation between internationalism and isolationism and mm -hmm. um so that's what we're seeing but you're right that under presidents like ronald reagan um this idea that we would be the shining you know city on the hill which is mm. trite now to say but but is um, is true in terms of a beacon for democracy um has really eroded and um that is to me um desperately sad okay well um now we might shift if, um to talking about former president trump and his legal issues so that really is dominating the headlines um, in New Zealand. And I guess um, US politics in general has sort of became uh, more uh, front and center for a lot of people, thanks to, the, to Donald Trump's campaigning and presidency. Um, so he's, uh, he's currently on trial in New York. He has, uh, he's facing, is it a total of 91, um, 91 charges? Counts 91 across, counts. Across four criminal indictments, yes. Yeah. And so I understand that there has been discussion um, from various pundits that there's uh, the potential for a, an amendment within the Constitution to disbar him from holding office, which is Article 3 of the 14th Amendment. Mm -hmm. um, and I've, I do have my copy of the Constitution in front of me, <laughs> so I'll, I'll just read it, but I'll... I'll, I'll um, truncate it for our listeners. So basically it says that no person shall be a senator or representative in Congress or elector of president or vice president or hold any office, civil or military, under the United States or under any state who, having previously taken oath um, uh, to support the Constitution of the United States, shall have engaged in insurrection or rebellion against the same or given aid or comfort to the enemies thereof. But Congress may, by a vote of two thirds of each house, remove such disability. So this amendment was brought in after the Civil War. Is that correct? Yes, what we call a civil war. Of course, there's many civil wars across the world. It's the United States Civil War um, that took place in the 1860s. You know, it may interest your readers just by way of preface to this conversation that um, there are just three requirements to be president of the United States: an age requirement, a residency requirement, and having to have been a natural-born citizen. This this um, there that's it and so um there is no limitation on a felon becoming president in our constitution there is no limitation on someone who is imprisoned becoming president under our constitution um it is true that uh there have been some legal opinions written uh over the past decade starting at water watergate that no sitting president can be indicted they can only mm -hmm. be impeached, which is, a, which is a political remedy for, you know, high, what we call high crimes and misdemeanors, really political crimes, breach of the public trust. Um, uh, so they can be removed that way. But after they leave office, they are perfectly, and the Constitution is clear on this, they can be indicted and tried for crimes after they leave office. Um, the, the interesting question to me, before I get to the 14th Amendment, is whether or not he's, if he's in prison, because he could be. Um, these charges are quite significant, especially um, the 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 case involving classified documents and the one in Georgia, um, you know, there's a lot of significant charges against him. He could be convicted. And what might happen is that um, the Supreme Court would hold that because the duties of his office cannot be performed from a prison, that a president can't be imprisoned either. So he can't be indicted while in office and he can't be imprisoned. So in effect, um, winning the presidency could be and I, this is a monopoly, you know, reference, but it could be his get out of jail free card. So he could be in prison, elected president, and then he Correct. would get out of prison. Potentially. Um, but have to go back to prison, presumably, once the presidency was finished? Correct. Correct. That was probably <laughs> the way it would work. And again, this probably would be determined by the U.S. Supreme Court at some point. Mm -hmm. um, as to the 14th Amendment, so what, what, what happened there, of course, we had a we had a, a civil war in the United States from 1861 to 1865. Um, after that war was over, the rebellious states uh, in the, what was called the Confederacy. So they had, uh, they had seceded from the Union um, on grounds that the Northern states were oppressing their um, capacity or their, uh, the legality of slavery uh, and, not, and, not, uh, and not accommodating slavery as new territories became states. So that was their reason for secession. Um, people call it states' rights reasons, but it was slavery. That's the reason why mm -hmm. they seceded. 
And, um, and so all these states after uh, the rebellion was put down and the Confederate army was, uh, was defeated, the question was, how are these states gonna come back in the union? Because it's an interesting constitutional problem. They left the union. And so how are we gonna bring them back in and under what conditions? And one of the conditions that the, at that time, the Republicans who were the uh, party of the union, uh, Abraham Lincoln's party, um, they said, we'll let you come back in, but you have to ratify the 14th Amendment. The 14th Amendment is essentially an amendment in Section 1. You read Section 3, but in Section 1, it's an amendment that says that the states have to respect uh, the equal rights of freed slaves for all intents and purposes. That's, mm -hmm. that's what it says. Um, and so it's, a, it's an amendment directed at the states themselves. In Section 3, the, uh, the Republican Congress at the time added the section that you read, and that was intended to ensure that the Southern states who would be re, you know, sort of readmitted to the Union um, could not then uh, elect rebels, right, mm -hmm. to, uh, who had fought in the Confederate Army to come to serve in the House or the Senate uh, in any government office. Um, that they were disqualified from doing that, and um, and that was reasonable at the time because you you know you don't really want uh, generals who you fought against coming into your Senate and making laws on behalf of the Union. The, the Union had been preserved notwithstanding their rebellious activities, and so this was a disqualification of them from holding office, and um, and ultimately, General Grant, Ulysses S. Grant, who was the leading general uh, for the Union in the Civil War, became president after the Civil War, and he granted amnesty. And Congress did too, because as you read, two-thirds of vote of Congress can, can grant amnesty to, um, to the, these, the insurrectionists. And ultimately, the government granted, did grant them amnesty and allowed them to come back in the government. This was, I think, in the 1870s. Uh, um, and so, um, so that happened. But the interesting thing for today is that that section three remains on the books, right? Mm -hmm. It was certainly intended to address the Civil War. But by its terms, it says that if someone engaged in insurrection or rebellion, they are not eligible for an office of the United States government. And so what scholars have done recently, two very conservative scholars and a conservative judge, judge a guy named Judge Luttig, who's from a retired judge now, but very, very famous and extremely well-respected, have argued that, that this uh, Section 3 is an, creates an immediate situation in which someone who did engage in insurrection is disqualified and nothing more needs to be done. Essentially, his name can be taken off the ballot. Um, the legal terminology here is that it's self-executing. That is, it must be followed mm -hmm. um, by election officials. And election officials vary. You know, we've got 50 states that run their elections on, you know, each in their own individual way. So technically speaking, each election official in either state would have to say, okay, he's disqualified um, mm. and we're not going to put his name on the ballot. Now, a couple, couple wrinkles here. Um, one is that uh, Donald Trump has not actually been charged with the crime of insurrection, right? Yep. He's been charged with lots of other things. Defrauding the federal government is one of the most important ones by prosecutor Jack Smith, but not insurrection. So it has never been proven um, that he is an insurrectionist. Um, and in that sense, um, it may be that people have different opinions about whether he was, no doubt they do. <laughs> and so this issue will probably be resolved by the US Supreme Court because right now there is litigation uh, unfolding um, in some state courts where plaintiffs are seeking to have Donald Trump's name taken off or at least, you know, eliminated from any uh, election ballot going forward because of Section 3 of the 14th Amendment. And those courts will ultimately decide the issue and there will be appeals uh, into the U.S. Supreme Court. And I feel very sorry for the U.S. Supreme Court having to decide this issue because, um, because they very likely will. And um, I can't say 100%, but I think likely they will. And in that case, they're going to be thrust right into uh, the political fray. Um, they were when uh, George Bush won against Al Gore in mm -hmm. 2000, 2000 election. They had to resolve that election. And it was very divisive what they did. And in fact, 
their uh, public opinion, public approval rating took a hit as a result mm -hmm. of doing that. Um, so this would be very awkward for them to do, and I don't know what they're going to do about it. But the other issue that has come up is whether or not the presidency is an officer of the United States. Believe it or not, believe it or not, there is an argument that he is not. Why? Because in the, the, the Article 2 of the Constitution, it says that the president appoints officers of the United States. Mm -hmm. And so if he's the one appointing the officers, then he himself can't be an officer. That's the way the argument works. Um, and so there have been some very prominent uh, judges and scholars who have argued that he is not even subject to uh, Section 3 of the 14th Amendment. So you can see here that these arguments are, are not a slam dunk. Um, the application of Section 3 of the president, uh, to President Trump is not a slam dunk. And uh, we just have to follow it over time to see what the courts do. So this all stems from January 6th. That's the alleged act of insurrection rebellion. So they, the, um, it was the House Committee uh, released its findings, which were fairly damning and, and um, said that Trump you know, was willfully engaged in what happened on January 6th and took some deliberate actions to, 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 to lead to its occurrence. But you're saying because he was, he's never actually been charged over anything that happened on January 6th. That's right. And he wasn't impeached. You know, he wasn't impeached for it. And it's unbelievable, really, to me um, that he wasn't impeached because there are two consequences to impeachment. One is that you are removed from office. Now, the impeachment actually can extend beyond um, a president's leaving office because the second consequence is that you can be disqualified from ever holding office. The Senate can um, impose that penalty uh, under the impeachment clause in the U.S. Constitution. And so they could have disqualified him right then, right, right then and there, but they did not, um, as you know. And so he was never impeached. And um, so now it's come to the secondary argument under the 14th Amendment. Um, now, we will see, uh, depending upon when it comes to trial, uh, the Georgia case is what we call racketeering. It's a racketeering case. That's a, that's a massive conspiracy. Um, racketeering is what you think of as organized crime. So, um, so it's, it's like a, an organized crime prosecution. And it was <laughs> in the sense that um, technically, uh, in the sense that these people were organizing to um, arguably defraud Georgia. That was the, this is a case brought by the state of Georgia. And um, so that case does have overtones of insurrection, right? Where the president is involved with co-conspirators, according to the indictment, um, hasn't been convicted yet. We're all innocent until proven guilty. So I will add that. But, um, but you know, according to the indictment, he was deeply engaged in a, a conspiracy, and he directed it, in fact, um, to um, propose a slate of false electors, mm -hmm. to, um, to monkey around with uh, voting machines, um, to spread a big lie uh, about the election, et cetera. So, um, so that looks a little closer to insurrection, but I don't, the, the language is not insurrection. And so when, yeah. when is that um, case uh, taking well, place? I don't do we know. Have, do we have dates? I think the effort is to do it in the spring. Right now, the case, the federal case against Donald Trump that is brought by Jack Smith uh, in D.C., I believe that has a trial date of March uh, of 2024. Um, the classified document case I read this morning, um, the target is May of 2024. I don't know when the Georgia case will be squeezed in between before or after, probably after. But, but, and then, frankly, the big issue is whether it's held before the election. And mm. uh, right now, the prosecutor in Georgia has been extremely adept at turning witnesses. Um, there are three lawyers who have turned state's evidence, we call it. They're going to prosecute. They're going to, they've, 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 they've you know, agreed to a plea deal and they're going to testify uh, against the other defendants in the case. And so um, that is moving along if you think that those flipped defendants, we'll call them, um, is, is major progress. And indeed it is. So I don't know exactly. I just know that uh, it's going to be very difficult for Donald Trump to um, to campaign at the same time that he's going to be seated in court, uh, you know, having to hear evidence against him. And I had written a previous piece that it's possible he could argue to the judge that he doesn't need to be present at his criminal trial, but that's up mm -hmm. to the discretion of the judge to allow him 
not to be there. And my guess is most judges will say he must be here. And I'm sure that Donald Trump's lawyers want him there. Um, mm. He's very effective. You know, he was on the stand uh, in New York at the, in the in the, the civil fraud case um, uh, involving the, the values of his businesses and, and his uh, alleged efforts to overvalue them for some purposes and undervalue them for other legal purposes. And um, he took the stand and frankly, I mean, he sort of ran roughshod over the courtroom. Um, and, you know, it was very difficult to control him. Uh, the judge, you know, was impeaching or sorry, in, in, beseeching the lawyers to do it. And the lawyers, you know, they perfectly happen to let their client go crazy on the stand as long as he doesn't say, something that undermines the case, which he probably did. But, <laughs> but this is a, this is, you know, one must understand that uh, lawsuits and trials uh, can provide a very effective platform mm. for populist politicians. Um, and I, most people don't like to make the, the comparison to Hitler's Germany, but one must all, one cannot forget that in 1924, uh, Adolf Hitler was tried uh, for uh, the Beer Hall Putsch, mm -hmm. which was a form of insurrection against the state. It was armed insurrection. And he used that trial to catapult himself into uh, uh, you know, higher positions of authority and positions of authority in the, in the German government. It was a platform. And that is also the case for trials that are taking place in the United States today. And it's a great worry to me, especially if uh, cameras are available in the courtroom. They're not in these cases, but they might be uh, in others. And it's certainly not harming his poll numbers. I mean, they no, continue no. to climb at the expense of the other Republican candidates. Nothing, nothing uh, harms his poll numbers among his uh, party faithful. Um, mm. there, there is a, uh, a very, very deep commitment to him um, for whatever reason among about 35% of Republicans. Um, and because Republicans don't like Biden, they're, you know, as a general matter, more than that 35% will vote probably in favor of Donald Trump if the presidency does come down to a Biden-Trump uh, competition. And um, they just love him for his, um, his willingness to be, um, what's the word, um, untraditional. <laughs> And poking a stick in the eye of the of the elites, you know that um, that they feel they've been abandoned by, I'm sure, um, and that they're offended that um, they think elites look down their noses at, at that group of, of voters, the Trump voters. Mm, so, mm. among many other reasons, but they they love them. Um, just quickly before we wrap up, um, you talked about impeachment. You talked about. Um, what the Republicans think of um, Joe Biden. Can you just um, quickly update us on the impeachment investigations into President Biden and his son? I realise that this is probably quite a, a large topic to unravel, but is this likely to lead to an impeachment hearing like we saw with happening with Trump? And Yes. So uh, there was a committee um, that was investigating um, the Hunter Biden laptop you know, corruption, alleged corruption issue with, with Joe Biden. That is, that is, the argument was, or at least the perception was by certain Republicans that Hunter Biden had used his position as son of the president to um, gain advantage in international, you know, transactions that he was undertaking in Ukraine and other places. Um, and that somehow money was funneled from Hunter Biden to Joe Biden. There's no proof of that. The only thing that that committee came up with was the repayment of a loan, $200,000 check from Joe Biden's brother, a guy named James, uh, to Joe Biden, uh, when Joe Biden was actually out of office. He wasn't even in office at the time. Um, but the, um, this $200,000 check has now become the focus of, uh, of the Republicans in Congress, as, as I understand it. And the, what they're going to try to do is argue that that was the source of some corrupt, you know, um, generation of funds somewhere, sh some way, shape, or how. Um, but this time it's not about Hunter Biden, it's about the brother James. Um, as, as I just recently read, um, there is some discussion in among the Republicans now that they don't need to impeach Joe Biden because his poll numbers are so low. So that's also been floated as a position. Um, you know, J Joe Biden, 
he, he, you know, you don't want to underestimate the guy. Uh, we just had elections uh, just a couple days ago, um, not presidential elections, but local elections and state elections in which the Democrats came out quite strong um, in those election results. So I wouldn't, I wouldn't uh, rule Joe, Joe Biden out as a, as a, um, as a, as a very powerful or, um, val or viable presidential candidate. But, um, but, you know, we'll see what happens. They, I don't think they have a smoking gun um, to impeach Joe Biden. Not that I've read anywhere. Uh, they have this one check. So if they can turn that into an impeachment, um, you know, good luck to them. I, I just don't, I just don't know that that's going to be effective. They are effective, however, very effective in uh, their public messaging that Joe Biden is corrupt. Mm -hmm. They, they uh, you know, notwithstanding the fact that Donald Trump's kids walked away with billions of dollars from the Saudis, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, you want to talk about uh, family influence, presidential influence, there it is. Um, this is chump change compared to that. It's $200,000. If there's anything there, it's chump change compared to Donald Trump's kids. But, um, but the, you know, the, they, they're very effective at claiming that there is the Biden crime family. It's the rhetoric, but people, mm. you know, people listen to it here. Fox News uses it and um, people believe it. Wow. Yeah. Oh, that's um, been fascinating. Thank you so much. Was there anything else you wanted to touch on before we sign? Well, I mean, you know, the other small point that, uh, that may be worth making here for your listeners is that um, the uh, Trump presidency um, is, or the, the candidacy, I should say, um, is extremely interesting for one other important reason, and that is that Donald Trump refuses to participate hmm. in any uh, debates. Yeah. And so we have this very odd situation, which we have now five candidates qualify for the debate. You have to have a certain number in the polls to qualify for these presidential debates. Yeah. And we have these five candidates who are um, debating each other uh, essentially over nothing. Um, the, only, the only thing, because they have no chance of gaining um, the, uh, the nomination for their party, unless, and there's a, this is a big, uh, you know, capital U, unless Donald Trump dies. And he is 78 years old. Um, I don't know how healthy he is. He claims to be the healthiest man on the planet. I mean, I you know, <laughs> something could happen to or a health incident of some kind. And then they would, you know, pop into <laughs> sort of pop up back into mm -hmm. some you know, significant viability. So I don't know if that's why they're doing it or if they're if they're trying to run for the vice presidency, but he's not going to pick any of those five. They're running against him and you know he's not gonna pick i doubt it uh that he would pick uh any of those five as his vice presidential candidate the only so. one candidate from what i've seen that seems to uh support him i wouldn't say without reservation but certainly um to any great extent is vivek ramaswamy um cool. and the idea of him as vice president is an interesting proposition oh my gosh he's he's um i don't know uh I, the word loose cannon comes to mind. I mean, mm -hmm. or the phrase, I, I, he's, he's very, it seems to me very unpredictable and, um, and is really, a, you know, is, is seeking the media attention and has gotten quite a bit of it. Uh, I don't know if it's been positive. A lot of it's been negative. So we'll see, we'll see what happens mm -hmm. there. The, the most recent news I saw was that Donald Trump might uh, select the Fox news host, um, Tucker Carlson as his running mate which could wow. be very effective. Yeah, it could be very effective for his base, no doubt about that. Wow, even though Tucker disparaged him in text messages, didn't he, that got uncovered in that lawsuit? He absolutely did, but, you know, now they're best, best buds again. It's amazing how they're willing to mend fences when it's politically, you know, um, when, it, when it's opportunistically, mm. um, you know, the opportunity is there politically for them. So that's, yeah, I've heard I've heard the Lincoln Project describe it as kissing the ring. Absolutely, absolutely. That's what that's what um, bending a knee, you know, to the yeah. king um, yeah. is what what happens in these circumstances. And so, yeah, he has a very tight grip on the Republican Party. I'm talking about Donald Trump. Mm. Uh, it is a vice grip. Um, the you know his his other Republicans who disagree with him, such as Mitt Romney from the Senate and who pointed out um, that his actions on January 6th were reprehensible and impeachable, um, have left the Senate or leaving the Senate. So we, the Republicans are shedding 
sort of moderate Republicans. Mm. And so what's left are MAGA, far rights, you know, uh, core faction that is running the Republican Republican Party in Congress. Wow. Very sad. Yeah. Well, that was quite something, Elizabeth. Wasn't uh, Stephanie uh, so engaged with your questions and really detailed assessment of, um, you know, the, the legal challenges that sit in front of uh, Donald Trump and what that uh, means for the, um, you know, obviously for the uh, campaign that sits ahead of the Republicans, but also just fascinating around the lack of clarity really in the US Constitution around the role of Speaker and how you could essentially hold up support for vital strategic interests of the United States, particularly uh, in Israel and, of course, particularly in uh, Ukraine, that, um, you know, because they haven't got a speaker, they just sort of sit on their hands. You know, the world's leading democracy, uh, sort of paralysed by our process. Yeah, it's really interesting how there's a year to go before the um, election day for president and there's so much that's going to happen between now and then and so much that could possibly happen um, and and the fact that this that that the speakership crisis led to this uh, ongoing stalemate that yeah potentially isn't going to get resolved because they're still having issues in the house about passing the um, the finance the budget that's required for the for the 12 months coming um, and for like you say that the world's greatest democracy, um, you know, the great American experiment gets bogged down in these sort of procedural issues um, that, that that are of its own making in a way. And I, I thought it was quite interesting reflecting on the difference between that and what's happening in New Zealand at the moment, because we have had our election. We don't yet have a government because the um, uh, the you know the these coalition talks going on between three parties in our MMP system, but everything just ticks over. The the ministerial war- warrants for the for the outgoing government have just been renewed, um, and life goes on as normal for everyday citizens and um, uh, employees of the state of the government. But in the states, if they don't pass the budget, all federal employees are looking at having you know a furlough from work for a for a period of time it's uh, yeah it's happened before um and uh it'll probably happen again but it's amazing that that it comes to this Mm. and it seems to be happening more frequently i can recall it uh very clearly when it first happened with uh at least in my memory uh president clinton and that was the the first time that i can recall just the level of toxicity uh between uh, Congress, which was Republican controlled actually for the first time from memory since the war, Second World War, uh, and, um, and obviously a Democrat uh, president. And it was um, uh, everyone sort of pointed fingers at each other. You know, it was the president's fault, according to uh, the Republicans, because he wasn't agreeing with their stringent budget cuts. And it was the Republicans' fault, according to the president, because he wasn't going to sign off uh, a budget that was going to seriously curtail support for the the most vulnerable. Uh, and that sort of broad framing of um, you know the challenges of American uh, budgetary uh, cycles and who's to blame uh, just seems to continue with additional dollops of toxicity. So you fast forward thirty years, and um, you know the language and the level of uh, poison that gets sprayed around over there is uh, is quite quite striking to the New Zealand ear and as you say very different to uh, three weeks of negotiating uh, coalition agreements whilst the country just carries on operating because you know that's what you do over here that's right and the and public infighting amongst the Republican Party different factions of the party um when those things they do become public here occasionally in New Zealand, but typically it's behind closed doors. It's it's it doesn't present itself to the public like it is over there. Interestingly, the government shutdown that occurred in the Clinton administration, um, I don't think I can call it a fun fact, but it's an interesting fact that if it hadn't been for the government shutdown, Monica Lewinsky wouldn't have been deployed to the White House as an intern. Absolutely, sliding door moments. Uh, I'll leave it at that. Right, so let's talk about, um, uh, you know, historic presidents and fun facts. So we had a, uh, we've had a viewer 
listener, not viewer. No one can see us. Thank goodness. Uh, these are just podcasts. Um, uh, certainly in my case, I say thank goodness. So look, um, who has asked a question and, and who's the president uh, this week? Yes, so we've got a listener request from um, Chris and he has wanted to hear about um, Herbert Hoover and his uh, request was because he believes he's a damn good president, which was an amazing dad's joke. <laughs> if you know anything about Hoover. Yeah, well, that is quite funny um, because uh, you know, he is you know, synonymous with uh, you know, the Hoover Dam uh, in terms of the beginnings of that uh, uh, program. He's quite an interesting uh, individual. He was born in 1874 in West Branch, Iowa. Uh, so very much that sort of, uh, um, do you call it Iowa Midwest? I guess we do. It, it's certainly the Corn Belt and I've, I've been there um, and I'll t that'll tell, tell that story shortly. But um, uh, he was the 31st president and elected in November 1928 in a landslide. Uh, fun fact, he uh, defeated, uh, soundly defeated the first ever Catholic nominee uh, for the Democratic Party, a guy called Alfred E. Smith. Uh, of course, the most famous second ever uh, Catholic um, nominee was a one John F. Kennedy in 1960. So Hoover beat uh, Alfred E. Smith by an absolute landslide in 1928. He oversaw a country that was booming initially, uh, but of course, by October 1929, we had the famous share market crash, which led to the um, global depression. Uh, and that was a massive impact, of course, around the world, but particularly in America by 1930, uh, the national unemployment rate had reached uh, twelve percent, and uh, kept on growing. Got over to f up to fifteen percent six months uh, later, uh, and at its worst, uh, in certain states of America, one in four people uh, were unemployed. Oh. And his response to that was that um, you know you should be fiscally, uh, you should have fiscal restraint, and so. Um, you know, tightening the money supply in an environment of global depression uh, mm -hmm. ended up uh, back actually um, made it made it worse. Um, but and he got resoundingly thumped uh, by Franklin Delano Roosevelt in 1932, one of the largest ever defeats of a of a sitting uh, president. But what's really interesting and it's a little fun fact is when he he was one of the first ever graduates out of Stanford University in uh, Palo Alto in the west coast of America, now one of the top Ivy League uh, universities in America. He was fascinated with uh, chemistry and uh, um, science. He became a, a renowned mining expert and spent significant amounts of his uh, late twenties, uh, in based in Western Australia. Wow! And had a number of. Uh, you know, he was involved in the first zinc mine in Australia. Uh, he created his enormous personal wealth out of his mining uh, uh, business, uh, and obviously it was he was a shareholder in this business. But it had mines in Australasia and Asia and Russia. Uh, and when I went to uh, his museum in uh, Iowa, the Hoover, uh, the Herbert Hoover Memorial uh, Museum. Uh, and anyone listening who's been to presidential museums, they are something else. This one was no exception. It was fantastic. All his correspondence uh, available. You could see it. It was easily accessible. And of course, being a New Zealander, I just typed in New Zealand just to see what happened. And there instantly came up this Document documents of him when he was based in Australia, writing to the mine managers of Krangahappy Mine, mm -hmm. Krangahappy Mine, south of Waihi, mm -hmm. uh, asking about what was in there, um, you know, what was in the ground there, and that gave me a real frisson of excitement because my great grandfather was lived in Krangahappy at exactly that time, wow. uh, and was the station master. And so you just think of all these little connections. Degrees of separation. Library in Iowa. Uh, and here's a president who, um, you know, with only one term, 
and uh, like I say, got thumped because he got caught up in um, America's pretty poor response to the Depression, to be honest. Um, and yet his previous life, um, you know, he had a connection with New Zealand and where my great-grandfather was. And um, after his very successful career in mining, he was tapped by Woodrow Wilson to assist in providing uh, food for Americans who were impacted by the First World War. Uh, that also um, uh, widened to a relief for those who had um, uh, suffered uh, from the First World War in Europe. And then post his uh, presidency in the 1940s, uh, Truman, President Truman, asked him much later in his life to uh, essentially replicate that model and, and oversee the support of uh, food aid, to, particularly to Europe, um, after the Second World War. And he died in 1964, age 90. Wow. Uh, both uh, him and John Adams, uh, the up till now, the presidents who have lived the longest, uh, that will be uh, most certainly um, uh, taken over by uh, Jimmy Carter, who is still with us, but mm -hmm. uh, as I understand, not very well um, in a hospice in Georgia. So um, remarkable man and uh, uh, a guy whose presidency was seen as a failure, but his his uh, life service and community service, particularly pre post World War One and World War Two, in terms of supporting uh, food aid in particular to those who most needed it around the world, uh, seen as quite a humanitarian. Excellent. What an interesting story. So I presume that the fact that he did so much for so many people in those um, post war years is why they thought he would make an excellent candidate for president. Yes, that was that was exactly the uh, case. He was the Secretary of Commerce uh, through uh, President Harding and, and President Coolidge's uh, term uh, and significantly expanded the mandate of that. Uh, you know, this is, this is a time, and he was a, a president, where a, a very activist, roll your hands up, um, you know, lead from the front uh, kind of individual. Um, he he was not someone that you appoint as a cabinet uh, secretary and they just sort of uh, watch from afar as, you know, their ministry, um, you know, does their particular uh, work. He very much drove um, everything he did, uh, be it mining, be it uh, overseeing uh, federal, uh, federal aid and support in the, in the context of... Um, uh, Commerce Secretary or international aid and support in the context of um, uh, you know support post World War One and World War Two for initially Americans, but then anybody caught up in that uh, those conflicts, he was seen very much as somebody who could get stuff done, mm -hmm. and uh, that was very much um, you know his brand and part of the reason why he won comfortably in 1928. But I don't think. Um, there would be a time in, in recent American history where you would have two elections, 1928 and 1932, where so much had changed in the country in those four years. Mm. America in 1928, uh, uh, certainly from an economic and prosperous prosperity perspective, unrecognizable four years later, uh, when you have one in four um, men unemployed, um, shanty towns established everywhere called Hooverville, named mm. after him uh, and um, you know his popularity was uh, you know some of the lowest levels uh, ever recorded wow but Thank seen you. now and through the lens of history as someone who um, you know certainly were motivated for the right uh, reasons uh, involved in politics for the right reasons just fundamentally believed that the way you dealt with economic uh, crises was cutting government expenditure to to ensure that the books were balanced, mm. not um, spending money to create, um, you know, expanded federal programs and community um, engagement in society, which is very much uh, Franklin Delano Roosevelt's mm. um, uh, model. Fascinating. Thank you.
Okay, well, that's it for this episode of What's the Story, Old Glory. We will be coming to you next time with another fascinating guest to provide us with some unique insights on um, a dimension of US politics and what's happening with the presidential election. So until then, from sunny Oamaru, I'm Elizabeth Sol. And from an equally sunny and warm uh, Tauranga, I'm Todd Muller. What's the Story, Old Glory is written, produced, edited and presented by Elizabeth Soule and Todd Muller for Old Glory Casting. Our cover art is by Caitlin at Studio Naylor. Our theme music is Shootout at Sundown by Del Boney. You can find us on all the usual social media channels at Old Glory Pod and send us your questions to oldglorypod at gmail.com.